Good afternoon. Welcome to Jay's Talk Plus. I'm Blake Murphy. Back today. Thanks to Ben Nicholson-Smith for filling in yesterday while I was off. Missed, uh, well, I didn't miss it. I was watching the games. Missed getting to talk about a pretty exciting Jays weekend. That game Sunday was not the outcome you wanted, but that was a lot of fun. Before we get into today's show, other than thanking Ben Nicholson-Smith, oh, I guess I should, uh, I doubt very much he's listening, but it's Zach Pop's birthday, so happy birthday to Zach Pop. We're going to talk to Doug Fox a little bit later about a number of the Jays minor league teams that wrapped up this past week. I talked to Jay Jaffe of Fangraphs about the AL wildcard race and the Aaron Judge chase, specifically if we're going to get Aaron Judge hitting a historic home run at Rogers Center early next week. We're going to talk to Alex Coffey about the Philly side of things as the Jays line up for two in Philadelphia. Uh, quickly, though, a little standings update in case you didn't catch the action yesterday or want to know where we're at heading into this next stretch of nine consecutive days with a game. Jays are five and a half back of the Yankees with 15 to go. They're in the top wildcard spot, a game up on Tampa, a game and a half up on Seattle. The Jays are six and a half games insulated from the next team out of the playoffs. Baltimore's five games out, but the Jays have that extra two spots, extra game and a half. So looking pretty good. Fangraphs has the playoff odds at 99.6%. Fangraphs also has the playoff odds showing there's only a 3.4% chance that any team other than Toronto, Tampa, Seattle gets one of those spots. Still a lot of jockeying to be done. If you can have a strong week here, maybe that series early next week against the Yankees is one with a division on the line. Before you get to that, though, you got to play two at Philly, two at Tampa to help us set this next stretch up. Joe Siddle and Chris Black, both of Sportsnet, both of Blue Jay Central. Joe, how are you? Fantastic, boys. How are we doing today? I am doing well. Chris, how about you? I'm doing wonderful. I'm looking forward to, I'm producing the Tampa series coming up. So it's going to be a big series. Looking forward to it. That's uh that's a lot of fun. And you haven't had your fill of the Rays yet, I guess after a uh, multi, it feels like because of that five game series, they've played so much. Um, at least this one's at the trop. So in your production, Chris, you can, uh, you can go into all the deep weirdness of the trop ahead of a potential wildcard series there. Will not run any old highlights of Trump. <laughs> tricks. No fun for any Blue Jays fans. No, um, we'll talk in a little bit about whether just how much rather uh, home field will matter in a wild card series. Uh, I want to start off, though, tonight's game. It'll be Ross Stripling on the hill against Kyle Gibson. Coming out of this off day, the Jays are lining up the rotation with Stripling Gosman. They haven't announced yet, but we assume from there it's Barrios Manoa. And what that does is it lets you use the number five starter on Saturday and only once during this nine-day stretch before you have another off day. Ross Stripling being a guy that we talk about as one of the higher in the rotation guys instead of one of those, well, maybe it's a Mitch White day today. It's come a long way from the start of the year. Joe, when you look at how the Jays shape up for the playoffs or how they shape up for these last couple weeks, how much has your opinion on Ross Stripling's place in this rotation changed over the course of the year and where he factors in for these big decisions ahead? 
Well, how about the fact that we're even having this conversation about Ross Stripling? If you'd have told me this when I was in Florida during spring training, I would have thought you were crazy. <laughs> it's uh, it's remarkable where he's come. Like, not only filling in for Ryu when he was injured, but then really taking it and running with it. I would never honestly have predicted this. I thought I saw Ross Stripling as a very solid major league pitcher uh, plays a great role because he can be that swingman from the pen to the rotation and, and give you some innings and just be that valuable piece, but not a star by any means. And he is pitching like a star and he is a star on this team right now, way back when he started filling in for Ryu and was pitching very well. I made the comment a few times. I said that, you know, Ross is not, the most valuable player on this team, but he's the most valuable player on this team. <laughs> he is that's, that's the, the role he played the way he has filled in. So it's remarkable. And I think just the stuff, I mean, I didn't think he could utilize his four pitches as effectively as he is. And the way he's tinkered a little bit with the fastball and he, he uses the top of the zone so well. And the changeup is just otherworldly right now. So, yeah, I didn't see this coming. I'm not sure the Blue Jays did. If they did, good on them. But I did not see this happening. Didn't think this would be the conversation. But it is a great one. Chris, um, Joe just mentioned there working up in the zone uh, a little bit more than maybe he expected, a, a little bit more effectively than maybe he expected. I, I know that that's something you've kind of had an eye on because – one of the sticking points with Ross Stripling is, well, if you have all this great secondary stuff, you tunnel well, you sequence well, how far can you go without a high-end four-seam fastball? And what you found, I think, is that he could be a little more effective with that fastball than the fastball might suggest on its own merits based on how and where he uses it. Yeah, I've been looking at a few different places of how Strip is using his pitches. And one of the things that stands out is not only is he throwing the four-seam fastball less off, kind of similar to Barrios, the Barrios conversations we've had in the past, the four-seamer, it's the pitch that gets hit the hardest for him. Again, we've had this conversation, you can't throw it, you got to throw it. But what Stripling has kind of learned or what he's kind of been effective with is just because he doesn't mean you need to throw it right over the plate. So he's learned how to put it in places where it causes the least amount of damage. So it's a lot of pitches right up at the top of the zone. It induces swings, but also it's setting up everything else. Everything else, this is a term to borrow, you know, from the pitching ninjas of the world. But it's off of those pitches, whether it's he's facing a lefty and he wants to throw a changeup that looks like that fastball, or whether he wants to throw a curveball that starts up at the top of the zone and drops in. He's just he really understands what his pitches do and he understands his strengths and weaknesses really well. Uh, we're gonna... It's interesting. Like I just got to mention this real quick from my perspective, what Chris is saying right there, it's amazing how the game has changed over the years, especially by pitching up in the zone, because I remember my days as a catcher, when we elevated a fastball, it was just to do it like one, two or Oh two and to change the plane and to go back down. But now more guys are pitching up there. And I think Ross is a perfect candidate, but you're talking about there, Black. Yeah, and we're, we're just reconnecting with Chris uh, quickly here, Joe. Um, okay. So in terms of that fastball up in the zone, I'm curious, you know, one of the things that really stands out about the way Stripling throws his change up is that because of his delivery style and his arm slot, it's got one of the highest release points of any change up in all of baseball. Um, 
is that why you think these two pitches pair so well together and why the, the fastball is effective early and counts up in the zone? Everyone kind of expects, well, Ross Stripling's best pitch is his changeup. Maybe I'll look for that. And then they look so similar coming out of his hands. Um, it could be. I think with, you, you mentioned a lot of things there. And I think first and foremost, the whole idea behind a changeup and the effective, effectiveness of a changeup it comes, it's derived from the fastball, right? So you want it to look like the fastball, the rotation, the arm speed, the delivery and everything. And that's what sells a hitter. And that's how you fool a hitter. So that for sure. And I know I've, ta- I've heard Chris talk about this before about his, his arm angle and how tall he is. And he really comes up over the top. That could provide that same deception as well. But I think too, a lot of it early in the count has to do with his array of pitches. I mean, if I'm a left-handed hitter and I'm going up against Ross Stripling today, if I'm Kyle Schwarber, I'm not sure if he's going to go first pitch elevated fastball. I'm not sure if he's going to flip that OO curveball in there like we've seen him do. And I'm not sure if he's going to do that little change up dying in the way, down, down and away. So you really, if you are going to look first pitch, you've got to look for one pitch and you better be ready. You're probably not going to square it up. So I think that's the part that makes it difficult on hitters as well. It certainly seems to. And Chris, you're back with us now. When you look at Ross Stripling's plan early in counts and Joe just kind of laid it out there why it's so hard to guess as a hitter Um, what are you seeing in the results from Ross Stripling early in counts and how is that if it is helping drive his success right now well I think the more I kind of look into what's happening in baseball this year um, and kind of the trends that's going the first two pitches of an at-bat are so so important and that might sound obvious but it just Swing rates are higher. Pitchers are kind of noticing that or throwing out of the zone more. This game that's really, really interesting. And Stripling is among the best in baseball at either getting to 0-1 or getting an out on the first pitch. Pitchers, only Jordan Romano uh, gets an out or goes to 0-1 at a higher rate. And no starter in baseball um, gets a called strike on the first pitch of a plate appearance more often than Stripling. So he's just, as Joe alluded to, it is that mix um, if you look at what's changed in terms of compared to years past, it's a few, it's fewer four seamers, like a significant amount fewer, and a little, and sprinkling in a little bit more of everything else. Sliders against righties, curveballs against lefties, a little bit more first pitch changeups. So just really, really, as Joe said, really, really unpredictable, and it's having great results. Joe, when Chris mentions that success early in the count and against Tampa Bay, you know, 20 out of 23 batters he faced, he either got an out on the first pitch or got ahead 0-1. When we look at Stripling's ability to get guys to swing at pitches outside of the zone later in a plate appearance, how much does getting ahead affect his ability to do that confidently? Yeah, that's huge because as a hitter, anytime you get behind, you're pressing a little bit. And as a pitcher, you've got them. And I think the Rays offense is a good one to do that too. That's the type of offense. I mean, you know, they're scrappy. They'll get their, they'll, they'll string hits together on once in a while, but they, they don't, I don't know. They don't strike fear in me. Let's put it that way as an offense. So to me, they're the type of team that if you do get ahead, now you, you don't even have to necessarily waste the time to try to bury them because they will expand, they will strike out. So that's where a guy like Ross, again, with all of those weapons, if you can get ahead, now what are they to do? They have to kind of be almost 
aggressive mode. And when you're in aggressive mode as a hitter with two strikes, your pitchers kind of got you. So that should play right into Stripling's hand. And it, I'm sure maybe you now it's just a good approach to pitching period. But I think especially against a team like that, I mean, when you're facing the Houston Astros, you don't want to fall behind them either. No, no question. But at the same time, when you're facing more of a mediocre type offense, oh man, you get ahead of them. Don't waste any time. Yeah, and, it, you know, we've seen Stripling go, Joe, a little deeper into games of late, you know, fairly frequently going six, maybe even seven innings sometimes um, against an inf- uh, a lesser offense. I won't say inferior offense because there are no bad offenses left on the schedule. Um, <laughs> but if it is a, a lesser offense or an offense you're, you're comfortable against, a guy like Stripling who doesn't rely as much on the swing and miss stuff, he can he kind of go into well, I'm going to be a little more efficient and I'm going to get quick outs. Um, like, like, does he have a little bit of control over that where instead of trying to miss bats and, and evade hard contact, he can just be like, okay, I'm up 0-1. I'm going to throw him something he can roll over and we're going to get out of this inning quickly. Is that something Stripling's capable of? Oh, I think so, yeah. I think because he has such good command of all four pitches. I mean, I feel like if he's going to throw a first pitch change up to a lefty, he can kind of spot it middle away. Like, he's pretty good at that. So I think that's his bread and butter. And, you know, the the thing is, we've seen some great defense from the Blue Jays on uh, many occasions this year, and that helps a ton. We've also seen some stinkers <laughs> defensively. So he definitely needs them to work for him. But, again, it goes back to having all of those four pitches and the command of all four. Like, you know, he doesn't even have to flip in a great first pitch breaking ball to a lefty to get ahead 0-1. He can kind of hang it up there. But as a left-handed hitter, rarely are you looking for that. Now, we talked about the Romano thing the other day, or we, we've heard about it, that, you know, is he becoming a little bit too predictable? Well, I think with Ross as a starting pitcher, and you're facing hopefully the lineup three times, it's easy to not be predictable because you're seeing these guys three times and there are a lot of hitters. When you're a closer coming in, you better not be predictable, right, even though you only have two weapons. So I'm glad you mentioned the defense there because – Sometimes the defense is there, sometimes not. With Kevin Gosman, who will start tomorrow, it has been, you know, debatable what the defenses look like behind him. And Chris, uh, we have you back now. Uh, I know that there's some shift-related stuff you want to talk about here. Um, June 22nd is kind of the date that you and I had circled as the, well, this is where the shift strategy changed against Gosman a little bit or behind Gosman rather um, nearly 70% of pitches thrown with an infield shift behind him before that date, 29% since um, what are you seeing in the way the Jays are shifting? And is there a takeaway from the weekend about maybe picking the spots a little differently? Yeah, I thought the, uh, the yeah, bat against Rutschman extra in a, or late in the game, huge leverage, bases loaded infield in like everyone saw that so it's not just like a a base it's not just like a single in the third inning with nobody on so it kind of renewed all the talk about shifting and how aggressive the Jays are I do think it's worth pointing out um, before you even dissect that particular play just how effective the Jays shifting has been this year first first of all 17 defensive runs saved from outfield positioning alone that's the best in baseball and seven more than the next closest teams And all in all, like a huge majority of their defensive runs saved, which is kind of, they're in a top 10 spot. It's mostly from infield and outfield positioning. It's not from elite defenders. So I think that's the first place to start and that they've been really good in terms of their shifting this year. But I think it's, it's a good, it's an interesting conversation because one of the things I looked up today was are hitters less likely 
to pull ground balls in kind of high leverage situations. And I haven't dove in enough, but one of the things that was really, really interesting was if you compare extra innings shifting against kind of the first six innings, uh, lefties pull pull grounders like 10% less. So which is actually a huge number when you're looking at it league-wide. So Joe and I, it's something we've talked about a lot, especially in postseason when we're sitting in the studio on those lo- on those kind of long days. I think in high-leverage moments, you got to be really selective where and when you shift. And Joe, what do you make of that? I know, I know that Chris and, and you have talked about it in, in the past privately and on broadcast. I know that he tweeted at you uh, about mm-hmm. it earlier, but I didn't see a, a response there. If you're a hitter at the dish earlier in the game, are you just more willing to stick with your approach? And then when the situation calls for it, you kind of narrow in on it as the numbers Chris presented suggest? I would even go so far looking more big picture, Blake. And the way I replied to Chris was like, maybe even the time of the season, like in April and May and June, guys are trying to put numbers up, right? Guys are playing for contracts and arbitration and all. So why am I going to go against the shift for a base hit here when I can still try to drive one, not only over the infielders' heads, but over the outfielders' heads too, and maybe off the wall and out of the park? Because anytime you're going the other way like that, you are kind of giving up that power possibility, right? So it could be the time of the season. Now, hey, we're getting late now, and games are even more important because they're, they're falling off the calendar quickly. And then the conversations he's referring to is, yeah, we're sitting there every year doing the Sportsnet postseason coverage, and guys do things they just don't do. Well, it's because the, the numbers are out the window now, right? It's all about finding a way to score a run to help your team win a game. So it's a lot more unselfish play when you get to this point of the season and in the postseason. And I mean, sure, we, we talked about uh, a, a Yuli Gurriel, a Xander Bogarts, these veteran-type hitters that, hey, two outs, two strikes, they'll just try to punch one the other way against the open right side to cash in a run. They will do that early in the season, but I think it, it seems to be amplified a little bit more later now and into October. Joe, does that make you worry at all about the degree to which the Jays have leaned on the ships? Obviously you have to make the playoffs. So anything that helps you get there over 162 is important, but you know, sometimes in other sports, we hear about teams playing a playoff style all year and taking some lumps along the way because, Hey, we got to get ready for playoff basketball or playoff hockey. Uh, Do you worry a little bit about a team that has shifted more than any other team in baseball heading into a postseason where, yeah, maybe more of those situations that you're talking about, more of the hitters you're talking about who are capable of going against that, those situations are going to come up a little bit more. It would be easy for me to say yes, but, you know, especially uh, like this Rutschman example you're just talking about or like the Gurriel or Bogarts guys I've seen do it. As soon as you go back and maybe straighten up your defense and take that shift away, well, then maybe now he's in launch mode and maybe it's a double <laughs> off the wall. No, really, like that's kind of the way it is. It's almost like what is, what's the lesser of two evils? It's, it's kind of hard because it's easy to poke, and I'll be the first to raise my hand, easy to poke at the shift when it doesn't work. It's easy when a guy hits a line drive into left field and the left fielder for the Blue Jays has to go way over by the line to get it because he was playing in the gap, and it turns into a double. We sit in our set of the Rogers Center every home game, and the ball, it should just be a single, right? But by the time they get it and get it in, because they're playing so far in the gap, it's a double. But that happens occasionally. And, of course, we don't necessarily congratulate the shift or amplify how good it was when they take those extra bases away in the gaps, for example. So for me to answer that, I would say, like, you know, it's so hard unless you're sitting there predicting everyone. But I would just – this is where I guess the gut comes back in because, honestly – 
if you're in the postseason and Jordan Alvarez is up, what are you going to do? I'm probably going to take away the pull side because and shift him because if he wants to hit a single through the left side, you know, like you tip your hat because he's going to do more damage the other way. And unfortunately, there are situations and the guys that can do it. Rutschman showed he can do it the other day, and I think we've seen it more than once this year. But yeah, it's it's really it's a toss up. So I don't to answer your question. No, I'm not overly concerned. Play the defense the way you want, and you have to hope that the <laughs> the hitter doesn't beat you because. Whatever you do, a, a good hitter that can handle the bat can always probably manipulate that bat if they choose to, and you don't know what they're thinking. Lesser of two evils is a great way to put it, Joe, and it makes me – these situations always make me think of the odd time David Ortiz would lay a bunt down the third baseline. And, and yeah, it's <laughs> funny, and yeah, you're on first base, but you know the opposing pitcher is just like, oh, thank God, David Ortiz is only on first base. Um, Chris, from one guy – from a team trying to stop pull hitters to a guy who is once again red hot pulling for power, Danny Jansen – Things have been clicking again over the last month to six weeks after what I think we could, you know, generously call a, a lull for the, the meteor middle portion of the season. Um, what are you seeing from Danny Jansen and has he earned that confidence back from you to be kind of uh, not every single day because he's a back catcher, but, you know, a, a guy who's penciled into the A lineup. It's funny. I think we've talked about the catchers quite a bit. I think that likely has something to do with Joe's position when he back when he played. But throughout the year, we've talked about these guys, and one of the things we've talked about is you're always going to need both of these guys. It was never going to be an issue of, oh, what are you going to do? How are you going to get them both in the lineup? For a few different reasons. One, cold streaks, which we saw with Jansen when Kirk was carrying the load. And the other big part was health. Catching is a position that lends itself to injuries and bumps and bruises. And Alejandro Kirk, you know, for whatever reason, or, you know, we're not sure that he can shoulder a load of catching a ton every, whether it's five times a week or whatever you want to call it. So Danny Jansen was always going to be needed for this team, and he's been valuable. Like, the crazy thing is if you you sort by, if you set obviously a low minimum, so like 200 plate appearances, he's fourth among big league catchers in WRC+. So it's behind William Contreras, Kirk, and Rushman. So to have two of the top four catchers in WRC+, plus, like it's been a huge, huge luxury. And the other thing that I've kind of leaned back on over the last couple of weeks um, is just talking about how much this team wins um, when he's behind the dish. Um, it's around a 700 win percentage with Jansen behind the plate. Keeping in mind, he hasn't started any Alec Manoa he really, uh, until this week hadn't caught any Alec Manoa starts. So to have a winning percentage in non-Manoa starts around 700, that's a huge win for the team. Now, it's really hard to split out what the catcher kind of deserves out of that, but it's just he does a lot of intangible stuff. I've always been a huge fan, so it's been nice to see him kind of get hot again. And don't think I didn't notice, Chris, uh, WRC Plus on the broadcast on television the other day. That wasn't me. I... That was all Doug Walton and Dan and Dan Jolman. Um, for anyone who doesn't know, WRC Plus takes all of a hitter's contributions offensively, adjusts for some things like park factors and the league environment, scales everyone on the same scale. So 100 is league average, higher is better, lowers worse. Um, Joe, just quickly before we let you go here, um, Chris was not sure how much credit to give to the catcher for things like a record. I, I got to imagine you have a take on that comment. 
Well, when it's good, it's all the catcher's <laughs> credit, and when it's not, it's the pitcher that threw poorly. Yeah, you have to you have to attribute a little bit. Very difficult to measure for sure. But I mean, as a catcher, you take an awful lot of pride, and I'm sure Danny and Alejandro both do in how you call a game back there, how you handle the pitching staff. There's just so much involved, and it starts early in the day with your meetings, going over opposing hitters, all of those things. But for me, you're really making your money, and you're really becoming valuable, valuable to your pitcher and to your team when you've got to get through the muddy waters. I mean, I could go back there and catch Alec Manoa probably right now too. That's not what's difficult. It's difficult when you have Mitch White out there and he's struggling to get through the third. That's when you've really got to be able to try to come up with something to help him. What pitch right here can get him back on track, that sort of thing. So those are the things that are very difficult. There's a good pitching staff. When you've got Barrios, I mean, when you've got Manoa and Gosman at the top, Barrios has been hit and miss, and then Stripling's been as good as he has been. And, hey, uh, you guys know I was the first one that raised my hand and didn't think the Blue Jays did enough at the trade deadline, and now what, do they have the best bullpen in baseball since then? So <laughs> there, something is going right. So I think uh, I think the credit, give credit where credit is due to the guys back there that are steering the ship. Anthony Bass trying to bring, bring back the uh, the Rugi position, the, the righty one-out guy with <laughs> never allowing anything to right-handed hitters uh, <laughs> as part of that bullpen. Joe Siddle, thanks so much for taking the time, man. I really appreciate it. All right, guys. Enjoy it tonight. Uh, Chris. One more quick one before we let you go on your side. Uh, Rymel Tapia is fifth on the Blue Jays in playing time over the last little stretch. You think that's something that's going to sustain? I think it is just because there's issues with health out in the outfield. Um, he does bring, we've heard the guys talk about it on the broadcast, he brings a, a few different dynamics. The fact he can steal the odd base, the fact that he does seemingly put the ball in play, even though we <laughs> seems like we see swing and miss from him, and yet when you look at the numbers, he puts the ball in play. Um, I think he's been more valuable than kind of I even thought to, at the start of the year, just given the fact of these kind of health questions that we see with Lourdes, with Teoscars, uh, with Springer, he's been more valuable. So I just think, especially the fact that they have a kind of a spot somewhat locked up, yeah, I think we're going to see him a lot over, over the rest of the season. All right. Hopefully we'll uh, continue seeing you a lot over the rest of the season, Chris Black. Uh, thank you so much for taking the time out, man. See you next week. Chris Black, producer at Sportsnet. Uh, that was Joe Siddle of Sportsnet and Blue Jay Central a little earlier. Again, the Jays back in action tonight for a two-set at Philadelphia. Ross Stripling against Kyle Gibson. Tomorrow we'll get Kevin Gosman against the returning Zach Wheeler. Got to ask our pal Alex Coffey about this one a little later. See what she thinks of the Phillies bringing Wheeler back in against a pretty good team without even a rehab assignment after missing five or six starts. Uh, interesting choice there from the Phillies, but Wheeler did that earlier in the year as well. So maybe there's a, a comfort level there or something like that. Um, we'll talk to Alex about that a little later. We'll talk to Jay Jaffe of Fangraphs about the kind of zoomed out national analytic look at this wild card race. And if the Jays still have a chance in the division, um, in our next segment, after the break, we're going to talk to Doug Fox of future Blue Jays. Last week, a lot of the Jays minor league seasons wrapped up. The Vancouver Canadians high A team lost in the championship. The double A New Hampshire Fisher Cats wrapped up their season. The single A Dunedin Blue Jays are in the championship right now. And the AAA Buffalo Bisons are still going. We were keeping an eye on that timeline-wise because their last game scheduled for next Wednesday. Uh, they were really close to 
the top of the division and a potential playoff berth doesn't look like that's going to go down. Um, so it's a good time to take a look at where the farm system's at at each level at this time of year. There's also, there was no game yesterday. So this is always a good time for a uh, prospect. Look, we also know which six guys the Jays are sending to the Arizona fall league. So we'll talk to Doug a little bit about the Arizona fall league and some of those names uh, as well. There's a 40 man crunch coming as Doug tweeted about earlier today too. So we got lots to talk to Doug about. Um, we want to hear your texts as well. You can text 590, 590, uh, your thoughts on where the Jays are, how you might line the rotation up. This is bear with me here because I laid out the rotation for the rest of the season, uh, texting with Ben Nicholson Smith earlier. Right now, the Jays have nine games in a row without an off day. So we're going to look at this as stretches between off days. They're going Stripling Gosman. We assume they're going to go Barrios Manoa out of that on Thursday, Friday. Mitch White then penciled as a starter on Saturday. That's the only spot you need a fifth starter during this nine-game stretch. So you go Stripling Gosman, Manoa, Barrios again coming out of that. You take the off day, you run those guys again over Boston and Baltimore. Mitch White starts one of the games in there. Now, if that sounds like it's not optimized or sounds like something that you might not like, keep in mind, just going on this stripling Gosman, Barrios, Manoa every five days and Mitch White just fills in where there's a hole the rest of the way, that would line up your wild card rotation as Gosman, Manoa, Barrios, and your ALDS rotation as Stripling, Gosman, Manoa, Barrios, Stripling. It's not the worst. I know Barrios in a game three of a wild card. I think a lot of people at this point might prefer Stripling in that spot, but you can't choose everything here. Now, the other thing is, if the Jays are not in a division race coming out of that Yankee series, you can kind of change the priorities there. Maybe you sneak in some extra rest for a guy or two. Maybe you use a Mitch White once more, use a Yusei Kikuchi, uh, things like that. Um, the other question the Jays will have to answer, and they have to answer the question first of whether or not they think they can catch the Yankees in the division. We'll see how this week goes and, and see how Monday to Wednesday next week goes. The question after that would be how much do you value home field in the three-game wildcard series versus optimizing your wildcard rotation. Uh, we'll talk about that a lot over the next week or two. Right now, we're going to take a break. When we come back, Doug Fox of Future Blue Jays gives us the wrap on most Blue Jays minor league affiliate seasons. Uh, and, hey, we'll take a look, see if Vancouver Canadians can uh, complete the comeback and win a championship out at the net. Uh, that's next on Jays Talk Plus on Sports at 590, The Fan. Starting Monday, be sure to tune into the J.D. Bunkus podcast weekday mornings at nine on Sportsnet 590 The Fan or wherever you find your favorite podcasts. Welcome back to Jay's Talk Plus, the second best Jay show as that uh, commercial implies. You're killing me, Shaylin. Um, I'm Blake Murphy. Jay's back in action tonight. 645, by the way. Make sure you got that dial to the Sportsnet Radio Network with Ben Wagner a little earlier than usual or your TV on a little earlier than usual. 645 at the Phillies, stripling against Kyle Gibson. 
two veteran starters, two guys in their thirties, two pending free agents. Uh, we're going to go the complete opposite end of the spectrum right now. Young guys, guys with years of control. We're going to talk to Doug Fox of futureblujays.com. Also the author of on account of darkness, which you can go check out. Uh, but this is a future blue Jays conversation. Doug, how are you, man? Blake, uh, so good to talk to you, and congratulations on being one of the top two Blue Jays talk shows. <laughs> Thanks, Doug. I appreciate it. Um, <laughs> let's start quickly with the AAA Buffalo Bisons because they are the team that still has a week of games left. Uh, perhaps most notable in this last week or so for the Bisons. They're mostly out of the divisional race, uh, but the Jays bumped Yosefer Zulueta and Addison Barger up to AAA for this final week to get a couple extra reps. Um, what does that mean to you when a guy gets this kind of last minute bump here with the team? And are you looking for anything from these guys? Well, it's, it's interesting how the, the minor leagues have structured the ends of their season. And, uh, um, it didn't really take effect last year, but it's been an industry-wide thing this year where guys from the lower level are getting bumped up and then guys from the lower levels there are, are getting bumped up to take their place. So it obviously means uh, two things. I think one that they, uh, the Blue Jays in this case, they like Zulueta to uh, to get some extra reps to make up for, for missed time. He's missed for the last three years and some time this year as well. And for Barger, it's a, it's a chance for some extra reps to see what he can do against the higher level pitching and also to kind of keep him in good stead and keep him sharp for uh, his trip to Arizona next month. Yeah. We're going to talk to the talk about the Arizona fall league in a couple minutes here. That begins October 3rd. Um, we're also going to talk about, you know, the, the 40 man roster crunch with which Addison Barger and uh, Yasser Zulueta are both, a part of they both have uh, rule five dates coming up in the winter before we do that one other note on buffalo you got to take a look at a couple of nate pearson rehab appearances i'd imagine we get at least one more this final week here um what did pearson look like to you and i know that this is a question that we should probably just stop asking at some point but do you think there's any sort of proximity to helping a major league bullpen this year uh, it's, uh, you know, two weeks ago, I, I would have said it looked very good when he, um, when he first came back several weeks ago, uh, a source of mine in the Blue Jays organization in Florida, uh, said that they had never seen him look so hungry and look so focused. And, and so, you know, that, that instantly gets one feeling very optimistic, but then in his most recent outing, um, he was removed after 17 pitches before the inning was over. And I haven't been able to, to track down the reason why, but it's no doubt that they're, they're really monitoring his fatigue and everything else. And so I, I, I would, put it as highly questionable as to whether we see him uh, in a, in a big league uniform this year, I would hope we get to see him one more time this year. And he, he finishes out his season on a strong note and gets ready to compete finally for a job next spring. Yeah. That outing too was the first time all year in the minors that uh, they've tried to pitch him on only one day of rest. So he had pitched yeah. the 16th. He comes back on the 18th, uh, throws a wild pitch, walks a guy, doesn't get out of the inning. So um, worth keeping an eye on that. If we get more information or see Pearson in another game, triple uh, a, the only place we can see other games, Doug, um, because double a New Hampshire done. Single A Dunedin lost in the championship. The Vancouver Canadians have two games left. They're down one nothing in the uh, in the championship out there. What are you like? Are we we looking at a potential comeback there? Do the Canadians have enough? Anything could happen in a three game series, but a three game series also means that a one zero hole feels enormous. Uh, please, I've been busy in the last couple of weeks. Correct me if I'm wrong. I thought Vancouver was finished. 
Oh, I thought they were. I thought they still had the uh, the championship going here. I thought they were um, down one nothing, but no, the, I believe they lost to um, uh, to uh, I believe it's Eugene, which is the Giants affiliate. Um, but you know what? Uh, hats off, and I tweeted. Oh, about they this. did. They they certainly yeah. did. I flipped my Vancouver yeah. and my Dunedin. Dunedin no, no is worries. down one nothing. It's hard to keep track of your A-ball teams, yes. but just a quick word about Vancouver. I know you'd like to talk about uh, about Dunedin and their incredible second half, but hats off to the people, the, the fans and the, the staff of the Vancouver Canadians because um, baseball fans, serious baseball fans and fans of the minor leagues know that uh, prior to becoming a Blue Jays short-season affiliate, um, the Seas did not, Vancouver did not have uh, a great time as a full season uh, affiliate. They had trouble drawing fans. Uh, I believe the last affiliation was with Oakland and the team wound up getting moved. And so I had some concerns just given the spring weather in Vancouver and given that past history, whether or not the, uh, the seas would be able to duplicate um, at least attendance wise, what they, what they had done as a short season affiliate, but hats off to them. They have a great atmosphere, a very fan uh, and family-friendly atmosphere in Vancouver, and they led the Northwest League in attendance by about seventy thousand over the runner-up. So, just kudos to them, and and what a what a really good move by by both Vancouver and the Blue Jays organization to keep them in the fold. Yeah, it looks like a, a relationship that's going to last a, a long time. Always makes sense to me to have. Um, you know, affiliates that, that promote the brand across the country and things like that. I wanted to ask you about one. I'm going a little out of order here, jumping to high A after AAA, but I did want to ask you about uh, Desan Brown, who um, at Vancouver, that was his third level of the season. He is a Canadian kid, Oakville, so we got to keep a closer eye on him. And he had, it was short, but a monster playoff run with three homers and two stolen bases. Um, where is Brown on your radar? Uh, trending upwards big time. Uh, 977 OPS for the month of September before the playoffs. Uh, he, he hit 317 over his last two months and still would like to see him cut down on the strikeouts, get on base more. But I think we're kind of seeing that, that five-tool potential that the Blue Jays saw when they drafted him out of high school. And, and given his background, that he's a Canadian high school kid, he was bound to be raw and bound to take some time to develop, but he really broke through, and I'm really excited to see what he can do at a higher level next year. That's great to hear. Um, that higher level, we'll, we'll use that as a transition back to New Hampshire. Uh, the Fisher Cats wrapped up their season last week as well. Um, futurebluejays.com, your site, Doug, named Ricky Tiedemann the Jays Systems Pitcher of the Year. No big surprise there, but um, we've talked about Tiedemann a couple times. Let's just put a bow on it. What's your, your kind of final exit interview note on Tiedemann and expectation for what the beginning of next year looks like for him. Well, I talked to, uh, as I wrote about uh, in the article, I talked to Blue Jays pitching development coordinator, Corey Popham, and, and I'd asked him what he was most impressed about with Tiedemann throughout the year. And he said it was keeping his velocity. Uh, and even though there were some obvious signs of fatigue, he didn't pitch into the fifth inning beyond the 8th of July. Uh, this season, so they were very careful with uh, with his innings. But I, I I would have to agree with that that he was still mid 90s uh, at the lowest. Uh, next year, AAA, I think for sure. Uh, I think we have to temper our expectations for him a little bit. While people want to get him into a big league rotation, I'm not sure he's quite ready to handle that yet. I think there's still some building up to do. So maybe we see him mid season next year. But we have to remember this this is a young guy. Um, who is, what, 20, uh, 20, 21 years old, um, still needs to ramp up a little bit. So 
I want to be cautious as the Blue Jays are with him and, and, and move him along carefully and slowly. And I think when we see him, we see him, but I think it's going to be worth the wait. Another 20 year old with that team uh, who, you know, rose a couple levels this year is Sam Robersa. Um, he didn't have the greatest of starts with New Hampshire, but really closed it out strong. Uh, I would imagine he is probably at least penciled to repeat double A next year since he only threw five, uh, five starts there. Um, but where is he at this stage in, in his development? Obviously a very unique prospect story and a guy who's only a year and change from his own rule five eligibility decision. But um, what's the, the kind of timeline on, on Sem from here? Again, Sem's a young guy. He won't be 21 yeah. until, until October. Uh, he did he did give up some contact in his first uh, four starts, three of his first four starts uh, with New Hampshire. His most recent one, he was not exactly facing a prospect-laden team, the um, the, the uh, Nationals affiliate, uh, but he still was dominant. I think he retired his last 13 hitters in a row, and he had all four pitches working for him. And that's that's the key is going to be the key for Sam. There's there's maybe a little bit of room to add some velocity uh, as he gets a little bit older, but it's it's his four pitch mix of pitches and and that was the best I have ever seen him that particular start he just had everything working and he had the hitters completely off balance and disrupted their timing so that's that's the key for him and I agree with you he probably starts at uh at New Hampshire again next year and with a with a move to Buffalo at some point he's, he's inching closer to uh a big league job. He had a farther distance to travel than a lot of other prospects at you know at a similar stage of development yeah, I mean, hey, the, you're a pro in the Netherlands at like 15 or 16. That's different than being a pro uh, in the majors. Um, the last of that 20-year-old trio at AA, probably the most difficult to peg what's next for him here. Uh, Aralvis Martinez, we of course track the home runs. He finishes with a New Hampshire Fisher Cats record of, of 30 home runs. But... 29% strikeout rate, only hits 203, sub 300 on base percentage. After a whole season in double A, it might be a little weird to see him back there. But given he's about four years younger than the average player there, could you see him back in New Hampshire to start next year, Doug? I think especially given rule five uh, considerations, because um, he's reaching the, the end yeah. of his uh, status in that regard. Uh, I think possibly see him, we see him at AAA because Leo Jimenez behind him is on the 40-man. He's going to need to play, to play next year as well. Aralvis, he didn't have a lot of protection in the lineup this year. And, and I, know what, uh, I know what the analysts say about uh, protection in the lineup, and it is difficult to quantify. But uh, let me just tell you this. He had a decent second half. Uh, and then when Addison Barger, who was ahead of him in the, in the lineup, was out of the lineup for, I think, five or six days, Aralvis went one for 30. Oh. Uh, and and say, say what you will. There's, there's something about having a guy ahead of you in the lineup who gets on base almost 40% of the time, like Barger did. So uh, I, I want to give Aurelvis a little bit of a, a, a mulligan. As you and I have talked before, and as, as I tweeted, he did not see a lot of strikes this year. He saw breaking stuff away. He saw fastball on the inner half. I felt from watching a lot of his at-bats in the second half, I did see, did see an improvement. I know Hunter Mentz had told me uh, uh, that his chase rates were down. So let's let's see what he can do next year at Buffalo with maybe a few more bats around him in the lineup. And so he's still, yes, yeah, like you said, he's still so young, and I think we have to keep that in mind. Uh, you mentioned Barger there. We we talked about him uh, briefly earlier because he did get the bump to AAA. Um, probably if you were going to say a guy who has 
improved his stock the most over the course of this minor league season in the Jays system, it would be him. He started at, at high A where he only spent five games last year. Um, just absolutely mashed a 366 OBP, 558 slugging, went up to double A. The numbers were almost the exact same. The OBP was actually higher. Now he's going to get a quick look at triple A and then go to Arizona Fall League. Um, I, I don't know if you already start to pencil your, hey, farm system rankings for next year already, but Barger at still just 22, getting the sniff at AAA, the team's obviously very invested in, I guess, finishing the, the project here by sending him to Arizona Fall League for a little bit more ahead of his own Rule 5 decision. Where is Barger for you when things line up next year? Like, I, I would assume AAA at the lowest, um, but is this a guy who could be on the Major League radar as a bench piece in the near future? I, I think absolutely. He has the arm to play third base and shortstop. He's a left-handed bat. He, he you know, let the cat out of the bag here, just like it was a, a real stretch for me to call uh, Tiedem and the, the pitcher of the year in the organization. I'm going to write tomorrow uh, or the next day about Barger being the position player of the year in the system. He, he, he led the system in so many categories, and he finally, uh, after being drafted in 2018, finally really broke through this year. And he is uh, he's one of the few married players in the system, and he has a young daughter. And I don't know if maybe that, that helped him grow up in a hurry this year, um, but but what a what a season that he had. My only concern about Barger, as I've written about, uh, is his tendency to chase. And I know somebody on Twitter said, well, his K rate is, is league average at double A. And, and fair enough, but K rate encompasses so many things, uh, principally which is your two-strike approach. And I saw Barger chase far too often, uh, expand his strike zone uh, more than he possibly should have this year. Pitches at the next level are going to are, are going to exploit that. But just the same, he made adjustments this year. Let's see what kind of adjustments he makes uh, next year. I'm of all the Blue Jays players being sent to to Arizona. Not that we get to see games um, from the Arizona Fall League, but he's the one who I, I'm looking forward to seeing the most in terms of his uh, how he does against the elite competition there. Yeah, it should be uh, fun to box score watch. I was going to say fun to watch, but fun to box score watch. Uh, so the six names headed are, are Addison Barger, Tanner Morris, Zach Britton, not that Zach Britton. Uh, the Jays have a catcher slash outfielder named Zach Britton. Uh, Hagen Danner, Hunter Gregory, Anders Tolhurst. Uh, Danner's probably the most interesting <clears throat> just because another guy who um, – you know, it, it, the team's facing some decisions on. He's He hasn't pitched much at all this year. He's actually already on the 40-man. Um, what would you look for from him? Just more innings? Or are you trying to see something from this guy uh, that justifies a 40-man roster spot as you head into a bit of a crunch this winter? Uh, I, I think more innings definitely is the goal. He didn't start playing. I think he's, uh, he didn't pitch after the beginning of May didn't start throwing a ball until the end of June. And so it's been a really slow recovery. So the Blue Jays want some innings for him. But as, as you say, I was thinking about this today, there, there is a looming 40 man crunch with a number of players. I counted as many as a dozen who could reasonably, uh, you could say are reasonably at, at risk of being selected. If they're not added to the 40 man roster, obviously they're not all going to be, but some guys are going to have to come off. And Danner is a little bit on the bubble. I think they think very highly of him. You know, highly enough to to put him on the 40-man after basically only one year uh, as a pitcher after having been converted as catcher. But he, of all the guys uh, being sent to Arizona, he probably has the most at stake this fall. It seems that way. Um, Doug, 
Thanks so much for taking the time. Uh, really looking forward to the Addison Barger piece on futurebluejays.com uh, and all your off-season work. Keep up all the great work, man. Blake, thanks very much. Thanks for having me, man. Doug Fox of futurebluejays.com, author of On Account of Darkness, which you should check out. And you can follow him on Twitter at futurebluejays. Uh, always some good information about uh, the Jays farm system. And he is... Uh, confident enough to correct me when I say the Canadians are still in the championship. It is the single A Dunedin Blue Jays affiliate that's down one nothing in the championship uh, and headed into game two um, with a couple of recent draft picks in Kasevich and Dottie. Um, so that'll be worth keeping an eye on. We'll update you here. A couple of minor updates before we take a break. Alejandro Kirk is back tonight. He's in the lineup at designated hitter and hitting cleanup. Uh, been a little bit since we saw Alejandro Kirk, um, that left hip tightness that he was dealing with. Um, you know, he had played 10 games or 10 game days in a row. There was a, a doubleheader in there. He only played one leg of, um, but 10 game days in a row and then uh, took almost a week off. Jay's trying to decide whether to IL him, whether he was available as a pinch hitter. He's back. He's only the DH. He's not catching, but. There you go. Um, another update is that the Yankees have just placed Frankie Montes on the IL. He's dealing with right shoulder inflammation. You'll surely remember that around the trade deadline time, one of the things we were talking about with Montes was, well, could you justify giving up assets for a guy who at that time was dealing with shoulder soreness and a guy who had an injury history prior to about 2020, um, you know, that's not, you, you never know with pitchers and the asking price was maybe around the same as Luis Castillo, who looks just fine. But in the case of Montes, there were some injury red flags. Uh, he's headed to the IL for the Yankees. That may also change the Yan the way the Yankees uh, rotation lines up. I had tweeted out earlier, um, our pal Ben Clemens at Fangraphs does the updated when will Aaron judge hit home run number 60, 61, 62. And I tried to break down what the best Jays game to go to would be uh, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday of next week. This might change what the rotation looks like for them because well, we'll see. We'll see how it looks. It should still be Nestor Cortez, Luis Severino and Domingo Herman. But we'll see if they have to juggle anything there. Uh, by the way, your best percentage chance of seeing a Aaron Judge historic home run would be Monday. 10.1% chance he hits number 62 on that day. 9.2% chance he hits number 61 on that day. That also pencils in as Gosman versus Cortez right now. So, uh, you know, make your decision if you're on the fence about those ones. But uh should be a good series regardless. Let's take a break. Let's uh, zoom out a little bit. Let's see what the national take on this American League wildcard race is. We'll talk to Jay Jaffe of Fangraphs next on JSTOCK Plus on Sportsnet 590, The Fan. Welcome back to JSTOCK Plus. I'm Blake Murphy with you for another hour here. Well, actually, I guess I'm with you for an hour and a half because I'm sticking around to do a segment with Ben Annis on Fan Drive Time After. Um, then at 6.45, it'll be Ben Wagner taking over for Jays at Phillies on the Sportsnet Radio Network. Joining us now, though, senior writer at Fangraphs, author of the Cooperstown Casebook, excellent mustache haver, 
Jay Jaffe. Jay, how are you? Hey, I'm good. Thanks. I have to ask you a question that I've always wondered, and I don't know who better to ask than you. So we're going to talk a little New York Yankees. Obviously, some news that um, Frankie Montes has said of the IL. Aaron Judge is all over the news. And I watch these Yankees games, and sometimes they'll show old clips. And there's obviously a lot made of what the Yankees tell you you can and can't do with your appearance. Do you have a good explanation for why mustaches are allowed but beards aren't? Oh, I think it goes back to when Steinbrenner brought the, bought the team uh, in the 70s. I, there's no good explanation for it. It's a dumb policy. It should have been long gone. Um, but I guess they decided that you know you you could keep your mustache trimmed within some level of respectability, but a beard was 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 over the line. I don't know. Good seems seem to uh, uh, flaunt the line. Uh, or flout the rule pretty well. Um, And I think there have probably been been a couple others who have as well, but uh, um, it's a a silly rule. And and the the hair stuff too, Um, you know, they've pressured some players into getting haircuts and it's it's just ridiculous in the 21st century. Yeah, and I wonder what would happen if Aaron Judge right now, uh, he of more than 10 war, according to Fangraphs, uh, and 59 home runs showed up with, with a beard. I wanted to ask you, Jay, um, Aaron Judge has 59 home runs right now. He's in Toronto Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday next week. I know your colleague Ben Clemens at Fangraphs has been kind of trying to put probabilities on it, but right. back of the envelope or, or posted note kind of, what do you think the odds are that I get to see number 62 in one of those games next week and he doesn't get there before the end of the week? Well, I, you know, I think you've, you've got uh, you got a small chance of seeing of seeing it. I mean, the fact that he's got six games at home here against the Pirates and Red Sox uh, beforehand, I think makes it likely that he's going to get uh, – something i'm actually uh, i have tickets for tomorrow's game so i'm kind of excited i calculated based on ben's odds that i have about a one in three chance of seeing either 60 61 62 knowing that there's a game tonight um you know and all those are all those are big deals anytime you're one home run away from ruth and you're either tying ruth or surpassing ruth you can put babe ruth in the sentence that's pretty cool um, and 62, uh, if he passes Maris, I will be a big deal because that's the American league record. Um, I know that, uh, outside of New York, people think that that's sort of a euphemism for, uh, sidestepping the Barry Bonds question and, uh, the, the PED guys that had, uh, uh, that surpassed the record in the early two or the late nineties and early two thousands. But, you know, the bonds, I mean, uh, Ruth and Maris, those, those names carry some weight around here in New York. And I think it is genuinely exciting to see, um, judge tackle uh tackle those uh long-standing numbers yeah and i'd argue given how rich baseball's history is and how rich the yankees history is even if it wasn't the american league record just chasing the yankees record with those names you mentioned is huge so um not to root against you seeing it jay but i do have Uh tickets for monday tuesday wednesday next week and ben's odds say i've got a 10.1, 9.7, and 8.7% chance successively to see
see number 62. So I'll be rooting for that. It, yeah. It's fun that we're, ch- we're tracking this. And I had a friend who lives in San Diego message me earlier and be like, hey, do, do you have the numbers for Albert Pujols and number 700 too? And I was like, I don't, but he's facing a lefty tomorrow. If I were going to try to guess a 699 spot, right. that's uh, that's tomorrow for me with Pujols. Uh, these two stories are uh, a ton of fun down the stretch here in baseball, all the more because both these teams are pretty good. Um, Yankees, though, big picture. So Aaron Judge, 10-plus wins above replacement, probably going to win the MVP. The Yankees have cooled off significantly. Now Frankie Montes is on the IL. Their division lead is hanging in at five and a half. Um, Where's your confidence level in this Yankees team being a threat in the playoffs, whether that's to get out of the first round or push Houston or win a world series, um, your overall feeling about this Yankee squad at this moment. Uh, I would say it's probably not great. There's just, they have so many holes in the lineup right now. I mean, besides Aaron judge, you've really only got Glaver Torres who's been hitting well lately. And, and, uh, uh, even when you look up and down the lineup, if, you know, if, if Anthony Rizzo is back and healthy, uh, if DJ LeMahieu comes back and is healthy, uh, you're talking about at most like five guys who are league average or better in the lineup. I mean, you know, Josh Donaldson isn't what he was. I know they're hoping Harrison Bader, uh, who's, who's making his debut tonight after uh, uh, being acquired the deadline and, and uh, uh, recovering from plantar fasciitis is, is making his debut. But there's just there's so many question marks in this lineup. Uh, the rotation, I think, I think they can feel a little bit better about, even with Montas going down. Um, Garrett Cole has pitched very well. Nestor Cortez Jr. has pitched very well. Um, their bullpen, I think, is reasonably good. It's not as good as it was when they had Michael King, um, but Clark Schmidt has done a very good job in that in that multi-inning role. Um, I don't have a great deal of confidence in this team, though, based on how they've played in the second half. Um, you know, I've studied uh, September performance and, it's in, and, and whether it tells us anything about October uh, and found that generally that's not the case. But, you know, you can't say the same thing about when you're talking about uh, uh, two months of the season or more. Uh, and that's how long the Yankees have been playing badly. So the Jays do have a chance to catch the Yankees, uh, despite that enormous lead, because like you said, the Yankees have struggled for the last little bit. Division leads at five and a half. Jays have three against the Yankees next week. We'll see how this week goes and how big a story that'll actually be. Um, If the Jays are going to do that, though, they'll need Kevin Gosman to right the ship a little bit. He's had two shaky outings in a row. And Jay at Fangraphs, you wrote FIP or flop why Kevin Gosman isn't part of the AL Cy Young conversation. I got the impression that was something you were intending to write even before Gosman had two shakier outings because there is a really interesting contrast here in, um, you know, what we think or how we quantify what should have happened and what actually happened. And I guess when it comes to something like the Cy Young, you're in the camp of, well, what happened is what matters the most. And that's why Kevin Gosman isn't quite in that conversation. Yeah, that's, you know, we've been looking at Gosman atop the, uh, the uh, fan grass fielding independent pitching and, and wins above replacement leaderboard since mid April, since he had two starts under his belt. Uh, <laughs> he started this, he started the season. Uh, I think it was five starts without a walk or a home run allowed. And, and fifth, uh, it's inputs are, 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 uh, walks, strikeouts and home runs. It's, it's, uh, uh, designed to estimate an ERA, 
uh, based only on the things that the pitcher has the most control over. And uh, um, he's been remarkable in, in that, but he's also had um, a record level uh, batting average on balls in play, which has taken his ERA uh, into the mid threes and, and, and created quite a contrast. It's, it's um, you know, when we write about when I write about baseball, I'm always looking for extremes. Like, and Kevin Gosman, I think, is about as extreme a case as you're going to find for uh, at least for this year doing the the pitching independent things very well. Uh, you know, striking out a lot of hitters, keeping the walks very under control, keeping the home runs very under control. Uh, but he has just not had. Uh, a lot of good fortune behind him, even on a, a Blue Jays team that has a pretty good defense. And I know there's been some controversy about the infield shifts and things like that, but it's really an extreme split here. And uh, um, yeah, finally got around to writing about something that I've been thinking about for months. Well, I don't want to, I don't want to upset Kevin Gosman because I know he didn't love the, the aggressive shifting. And since June 22nd, uh, the Jays have gone from shifting the infield 70% of the time with Gosman on the mound to just 29% of the time. Uh, but underneath that is, uh, well, guess what's happened in the non-shift uh, plate appearances? The actual versus expected stats have gone against Gosman again. Uh, shocker how that works. So you said with... Uh, fielding independent pitching FIP that the inputs are what a pitcher can most control. But we are starting to see as we have more data here in the stack cast era that there is at least, if not control, then, um, you know, some justified blame or credit to the pitcher for hard or weak contact respectively. Um, Do we, do we have something or can we, develop something that has, you know, something like an X BABIP or something like that um, to kind of bridge the gap between FIP, which has been very, very valuable for, for a long time and ERA. Well, you know, I know that there are people who have tried to do an X BABIP. And, and if you look around a few years ago, there were, there were a, a couple different versions of it. I think though, uh, you know, to get to what you're looking for, there's actually Statcast itself has a, an XERA, yeah. which is our earned run average based upon uh, the the batted ball inputs, uh, the quality of contact, as well as strikeouts and walks. Um, it's essentially another expression of, of what we call XWOBA, um, expected weighted on base average uh, that we have for hitters. Um, it's just scaled to an earned run average scale, and for Gosman. Uh, his earned run average is 3.43. His xERA is uh, is 3.43. Sorry, his earned run average is 3.45. His xERA is 3.43. Those two align about as perfectly as you can. Um, so really, I think that's what's saying is it's kind of the the fifth that's sort of the fluky one there, uh, which is a full run lower um, based on the quality of contact he's allowing in the strikes and walks. This is about where he should be, which is uh, uh, you know still a an above average pitcher. Um, but not a Cy Young contender. And I think that's a, that's a fair way to put it. And even if the, you know, 365 BABIP is the highest since the 1800s, you know, um, it's not uh, quite, quite, quite that extreme. I I wanted to ask you about something else you wrote. Um, I think it was two weeks ago now. So I apologize for going back to that, but you wrote a piece called Juan Soto isn't having a Juan Soto year. And I couldn't help but think about Vladimir Guerrero Jr. As I was reading it, Vlad actually came up in the piece because you were mentioning that um, Soto is one of five guys of a certain caliber slugger that doesn't hit the ball in the air a ton. And Vlad was among those as well, along with Aloy Jimenez right. and Christian Yellick. Um, 
as you went through that Juan Soto exercise and the Juan Soto isn't quite having a, a Juan Soto year, um, when you look at Vladimir Guerrero Jr. coming off a season when he came second in most valuable player voting and this year he's quote unquote only been about 37% better than league average at the plate. Do you see some parallels there? What do you make of Vladimir Guerrero Jr. having a good season? That's to use your Soto term, not a Vladimir Guerrero Jr. season. Yeah, I, you know, I see areas where he's taken a, a you know a, a few steps back. I mean, he's not walking as much. Um, you know, he's not barreling the balls frequently. I mean, he was barreling, barreling the ball at a remarkable clip last year. Uh, exit velocity was about uh, two miles an hour higher. Um, just, you know, everywhere he was excelling at last year, and he just wasn't hasn't quite been doing that this year. Um, you know, some of it might have been the the uh, uh, reduced offense and the and the the, the deader ball uh, that's been introduced. Although, you know, how, the offensive levels have kind of normalized as as it warmed up and as the season's gone on. Um, so I don't know how how heavily we can we can lean on that as an excuse, but he's just not hitting the ball quite as consistently hard. Uh, as he did last year, and he's hitting it on the ground a lot more. I mean, you look at the average launch angle. Last year it was 9.4 degrees. This year it's 4.4, which is about what it was in 2020. Um, you can, you know, uh, as I noted in the piece, yes, uh, it, it's harder to be um, uh, an extremely productive hitter when when that's your average launch angle, because that means you're hitting a lot of balls uh, with zero or lower. Uh, uh, launch angles and you know basically they're on the ground so you're not going to you're not going to hit a ball out of the park on the ground Um, you know you're going to risk running into double plays and things like that Uh, but you know he hits the ball so hard that some of those are going to get through and he's still you know a very productive hitter but it's just not MVP level Um, I suspect uh, you know maybe there's some bad habits there that he can you know that uh, he needs to to kind of shore up I don't know if there's an injury involved. I, I know that my daughter saw him get spiked in the hand uh, in a Yankees in a Yankees game, and she got very nervous about watching baseball on TV because it showed a close up uh-huh. of the blood. My daughter's six six years old, and she for a while she wouldn't watch baseball on TV because she was scared that there was going to be blood. It's kind of uh, uh, sad and up, uh, upsetting uh, for us uh, since we're a two a, a two baseball media member household here. <laughs> um, but, you know, I do wonder if just everything is 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 as you know, if he's as healthy as you could be. I mean, still a very good season, just not what what quite what we expected after last year's remarkable campaign. I, I'm curious, Jay, too, if that changes, you know, where Vlad's at right now, changes your opinion on the Jays overall. And I'll zoom out a little bit here and take a look at the AL wildcard race in general. Um, the Fangraphs playoff odds right now have the Jays, Rays, and Mariners almost certainly being uh, the three wildcard teams or, or at least making the playoffs if one of them doesn't catch their respective division leaders. Uh, only a 3.4% chance that another team sneaks into one of those spots. Um, how, do you, how do you evaluate those three teams? Because we, we can dive into a lot of stuff like run differential or WRC plus or how you did against teams above 500 and it's almost a a rock, paper, scissors with which, you know, depending on what you're looking at, one team looks the strongest and the weakest, and then it changes. What do you make of how the Jays, Rays and Mariners shake out? Yeah, it's tough separating them. Like you said, they've got very similar run differentials and things like that. I do think that there's something to be said for playing in the American League East. Um, 
you know, because you've got four teams above 500 and even the Red Sox, who, are, you know, I think of as being terrible this year, they're 71 and 75. I mean, they're, you know, they're, uh, uh, they're 20 and 42 within the division, which means they're 51 and 33 outside of it. Uh, you know, they're beating up on the, on the, uh, uh, the central and the West. Um, and, uh, I, you know, I think that the, the Mariners, um, if they weren't playing in, in the American League West, would probably not uh, not fare quite as well. Um, of course, if they were in the AL Central, they'd, they'd probably be the division, division winners. Um, but uh, I, I, I do give uh, the Blue Jays and Rays uh, a bit more credit because of the fact that they're you know they're banging against each other in the Yankees and the Orioles here uh, so many times and. Uh, um, you know that's a that's a top, that's a that's a higher level of competition than if you're playing the the A's and the Rangers all those all those times. Iron sharpens iron, uh, as it were. Um, Jay, this <laughs> yeah. is this is uh, more of a general baseball philosophical than anything unique to these three teams, although they do all have a pretty good top two, even top three in the rotation. Let's say that the division's out of reach. Like, let's say Yankees are out of reach and the Orioles aren't catching up. So these three teams know they're going to be the three wildcard teams, but we don't know how they're going to shake out between the three of them. How would you wait pushing for home field advantage in that wildcard series versus, you know, maybe accepting being on the road, but being able to line up your rotation with your top two guys in games one and two? Boy, it, it, it's tough. I think there's always a danger of getting too cute um, when you're you know, overthinking uh, your matchups and your uh, uh, you know home, home field stuff. I mean, I think the players will tell you, yes, we'd like to be at home. Yes, we'd like to have our rotation lined up. But at the end of the day, we just want to go out and play. We don't want to think about this stuff too much. Um, you know, if you're if you're if you're backing off, you you, you tend to to run the risk of uh, um, inciting the other team uh, to play just a little bit harder because they'll take it as a sign of disrespect. Um, and, you know, really, I think that so long as your guys are healthy, um, I think that's that's the number one thing. You're probably trying to line up your rotation further out than just, say, the final week. So, you know, what you're seeing already is, is, is uh, pretty close to how they, how they want it to fall. Um, I, you know, I think I think getting home field is especially in the wild card series um, when you've got uh, the the whole series at your home park. So getting that number four seed should probably be the priority. Yeah, that's it's going to be interesting to see. Anyway, I, I go back and forth on it um, in part because I've seen what Roger Center looks like during a wild card game and, and during the playoffs, and I want that. But I'd also really like I've also seen what it's like in a divisional series and an ALCS, and I want to make sure those things happen as well. Uh, so tough one, uh, Jay Jaffe of Fangraphs. Thank you so much for taking the time out, man. All right, sure thing. I hope you get the sixty-first Aaron Judge home run and save the sixty-second for me. By the way. I would settle for that. All right. Uh, Jay Jaffe, senior writer at Fangraphs, author, author of the Cooperstown case book. Fun chat there. A uh, little bit of news from our pal Ben Nicholson-Smith down in Philadelphia. Mitch White's there with the Blue Jays. Uh, no roster move announced yet. The way I personally have laid the rotation out for the next little while would not have Mitch White starting until Saturday. 
So maybe this is a taxi squad situation if needed. Uh, maybe the Jays see things differently. Maybe they are willing to line up differently for the Tampa series and thus the Yankees series and thus the series to come. Uh, but I kind of like the way I've laid it out, which uh, has the very fair and surely won't bite me in the butt assumption of, well, every pitcher stays healthy the rest of the way and nothing bad happens and they all pitch well enough. I don't know if that's going to hold a little bit of news outside of the baseball world that could affect the Toronto Blue Jays if they're at home in the playoffs, by the way. Reading here from the Globe and Mail, the federal government plans to drop the COVID-19 vaccine requirement for people who enter Canada by the end of September, the same day it ends random testing of arrivals and makes the ArriveCan app optional. Um, that's a report from the Globe and Mail. So if you're looking ahead to a wildcard series, and obviously the effect on sports is not the most important thing about the mandates and public health and all of this stuff, but this is a Blue Jay show. And it's worth noting that there are at least, or there is rather at least one notable reliever on the Tampa Bay Rays who did not come here very recently. And there's one starting pitcher on the Seattle Mariners who wasn't scheduled to pitch last time they were here, but his exit from Toronto and him not lining up for that series left some question marks as to whether he would be eligible to come here for the playoffs. So um, if that Globe and Mail report is accurate, if all of that happens on the timeline that's being reported, and if nothing changes, a wildcard opponent or a ALDS or ALCS opponent um, would be fully able to bring their full roster into Canada for those games in Toronto. How much does that matter? Well, we know the Yankees and Astros have said throughout the season that they're fully vaccinated and intend to stay fully vaccinated. Uh, we do, we know a little less with uh, a team like Seattle that only had to come here once and a team like Tampa Bay that very, very recently didn't have a key reliever here for a five-game series. So that's something to keep an eye on. Again, Mitch White in Philadelphia with the Blue Jays. That's also something to keep an eye on. Frankie Montes to the IL for the Yankees. One more thing to keep an eye on. We're going to take a break. When we come back, we're going to head down to Philadelphia. We're going to talk to our pal Alex Coffey from the Philadelphia Inquirer. We're going to see what's going on with the Phillies. Uh, they have not had the greatest of months. They're probably going to make the playoffs, but Rowdy Tellez and... Our Brewers uh, still looming around that wild card race. But man, does this Phillies team have a lot of talent on paper? Uh, looks like a dangerous team, kind of an NL parallel to the Jays, a team that has a lot of offensive talent, struggles to hit with runners in scoring position for long stretches. And even if by record and by some of the overall metrics, they're not the best team in their league you probably don't want to run into them if you're one of the higher seeds. Uh, let's take a break. Alex Coffey next on Jays Talk Plus. Everything you need to know about the Blue Jays. Blair and Barker. Be sure to subscribe and download the show on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back to Jays Talk Plus. I'm Blake Murphy, Jays at Philly, 645. Tonight, we're going to go through the lineups for you in a little bit here. We're going to go through the question 
the probable pitchers in the the matchups there. Uh, sorry, I got a question in the question in the text line, and uh, yeah, got tripped up. So, a couple little updates for you if you missed them before the break. Mitch White with the Jays in Philly, no roster move yet. Alejandro Kirk back in the lineup after six days out with a with left hip tightness, and. The Globe and Mail reporting that Canada is going to drop the COVID-19 vaccine requirement for entering the country just in time for the Major League Baseball playoffs. So if you were looking ahead to Jay's home field advantage and prioritizing that for that reason, one, I would say as a little silly because we don't know and um, it's not the most important thing when it comes to those decisions. Uh, But two, sorry, everyone's going to be allowed to come here and play if the Jays host any playoff games. Um, you know who wasn't here because of those rules? JT Real Muto, who we're going to see for the next two days with the Philadelphia Phillies. Uh, let's see what's going on with the Phillies. Joined now by Alex Coffey of the Philadelphia Inquirer. Alex, the big pressing question. I know it's just the two-game series. I know it's a quick turnaround for traveling media. But our pal Ben Nicholson-Smith, are we sending him to Ish Kabibbles for cheesesteak or Denich's for roast pork? <laughs> I am not the right person to ask, I don't think, because I'm not, um, and I'm probably going to, I'm hoping that Philly fans aren't listening to this. I'm not a big cheesesteak person, Mm. so I actually haven't been to either. Um, Again, hopefully no Phillies fans are listening to this. This is just Toronto fans who won't be as upset by that declaration. But, um, but yeah, I can't help in that that, uh in that with that decision you, you mean toronto fans who are priding their entire season on we can eat forty thousand hot dogs collectively on a tuesday won't care that much about your more gourmet food choices yeah they're a city full of rats on these uh loony hot dog days um how have things been going down in philadelphia uh they're not going super well they um have a four game losing streak right now um they haven't lost more than four four straight games under Rob Thompson yet. So there's a lot riding on this game tonight um, for them to break that losing streak. And, you know, right now they're in the midst of a um, playoff race. They're trying to um, clinch and hopefully in their minds, like set up the, uh, the pitching, they're starting pitching um, if they end up going to the postseason. So there's a lot of incentive for them to try to clinch sooner rather than later so they can get their starters lined up. Um, so yeah, a lot, a lot riding on this homestand for the Phillies. They're trying to break the losing streak, but also trying to put themselves in a position and try to, you know, play off better position the playoffs and uh, and maybe build some momentum too. Looking back to when things were going a little better in Philadelphia, I look particularly at late August. Uh, the Phillies went six <laughs> and three when Bradley Zimmer was in the lineup. Do you think this is a Bradley Zimmer absence related uh, stretch for the Phillies here? Yeah, I don't think so. Um, <laughs> honestly, I kind of forgot that he was on the team. Uh, it was such a brief stint. But, um, but yeah, I don't think that it's akin to, like, the Yankees without Joey Gallo. You know, I don't think that, that that's the apt comparison here. Um, I don't think that that has anything to do with their current current woes. I think it's more an inability to score with runners in scoring position <laughs> than anything else. But. Oh. Well, a little bit of that going on in Toronto, uh, up and down, ebbs and flows as well. Um, When you look at the Rob Thompson era here with the Phillies, not losing more than four games in a row at any point, 
even over a partial season, is pretty impressive. What is it about the Phillies that's helped them avoid extended losing streaks like that under Thompson? Um, I think, you know, he has like a, he brings like a very even keeled energy to the clubhouse. Um, He doesn't, you know, he's not like too stressed when they're like in a losing streak or too happy when they're on a winning streak. He's very like kind of in the middle. And I think that that, that works well for baseball in general and for this team in particular, just because, you know, the stakes are pretty high. They haven't been to the playoffs in 10 years and it's easy to kind of get bogged down with like every win and every loss, but he doesn't allow them to do that. Um, So I think that that's probably the biggest thing is just this kind of even keeled energy that he brings. Uh, So for Jays fans, they didn't get to see Bryce Harper because of injury and JT Realmuto because of restricted list shenanigans. Uh, Last time the Jays saw the Phillies, they're going to see the full bore of the Phillies offense this time around. Um, I know Nick Castellanos is, uh, is on the IL, but otherwise um, pretty much the, the Phillies lineup you'd expect these next two days. And this is a lineup that has been very good the last month or so offensively overall. I know you mentioned the trouble with runners in scoring position. This is kind of something the Jays have dealt with too, where, Hey, all the overall metrics for long stretches say your offense is good. You're, you know, whether you look at OPS or, yeah. or WRC plus, but sometimes the <clears throat> runs aren't there. Um, do the Phillies have a, a sense of what, it, where that disconnect is coming from in terms of individually, everyone seems to be hitting well, but the team is still, uh, you know, a 500 team over the last month or so? Yeah, I don't, I asked this question a couple of days ago and we don't really have much of an answer and it is a little bit ironic that they're struggling so much with runners in scoring position because by batting average, they're actually the best team in baseball in those situations. <laughs> so for the season, so, um, you know, it could be like what Thompson always says that this stuff comes in bunches, you know, like hitting comes in bunches and it goes in waves and stuff. So there could be a little bit of that and, they also just faced some really good pitching in Atlanta um, over the weekend. So, you know, that could contribute too. But, um, but yeah, we don't really have uh, have much of an answer. It just seems like a lot of guys are um, scuffling at the same time, you know. Yeah, that happens. And it's uh, it can be a frustrating one uh, for sure. And it, it's weird too. I look at the, the Phillies offense and with the exception of Bryson Stott, pretty much every regular is hitting fairly well individually on the season, but sometimes those things don't line up. Um, On the other side of things, the pitching for the Phillies has been top 10 in terms of starting pitcher ERA, despite what is, I guess, uh, we'll we'll be friendly and say uh, an interesting defense at times, Um, but the bullpen's been pretty shaky. Um, What do you make of the rotation overall? Because they've got a couple tough decisions here ahead of the postseason if they make it where um, with Zach Wheeler returning tomorrow, they've got six guys now in the rotation and you probably only want to pitch three or four of those come playoff time. Yeah. Yeah. Um, The bullpen has actually looked really solid for most of most of the year. And recently um, they've started to scuffle a little bit, um, which has been an interesting storyline because normally the bullpen is the issue for the Phillies. So, (laughs) the fact that they weren't like a total, uh, you know, like a total mess this season was, uh, was definitely an interesting storyline to follow, but, but yeah, you're right. The starting pitching has really carried them. Um, and I'll be curious to see what Wheeler looks like when he pitches on Wednesday, just because he's, he's missed, I believe six starts 
now. Um, he was on the 15-day injured list with tendonitis. And, um, you know, right before he went on the injured list, he told me that he was feeling as good as he he has since uh, since 2021 when he was runner-up for the NL Cy Young. So that seemed promising. And then all of a sudden, an IL, he got hit with an IL stint. So I don't, we don't really know what we're gonna we're gonna see from him, and they're gonna gradually build him up. With uh, they have Noah Syndergaard working as a piggyback behind behind Wheeler for his start against the Jays. So um, I think we'll see like 50 pitches from him, and then Syndergaard will fill in on the back end. But um, but yeah, it'll be interesting to see. Kind of like he's definitely an unknown, and then um, you know Bailey Falter, who was someone that they were using out of the bullpen, and then filled in for Wheeler has really done a great job in Wheeler's absence. Um, he, I think five of the starts that he's made for of five of the starts he's made, four of them have been quality starts. So he's, he's done a great job um, with not an easy task. So, so yeah, you're right. They are going to have to make some tough decisions because on one hand, you know, you have a guy like Syndergaard who you traded for at the trade deadline and, you know, gave up some, you know, gave up a player for that you were, that, you picked as the first overall pick and then uh, he hasn't really, you know, panned out there. He hasn't really been pitching as well as Falter has over the last or over his last few starts. So, so yeah, it's a, it's a difficult puzzle to kind of piece together, but they're going to have to uh, clear a spot for Wheeler and then clear a spot when they put together a postseason roster, if it, if it comes to that point. So I'll be really curious. I'll be really curious to see how Syndergaard <laughs> looks out of the bullpen because obviously, you know, the old version of Noah Syndergaard, you say, oh, he's struggling a little bit. He goes to the bullpen while well, he could just fireball it for an inning or two, but he doesn't have that same velocity anymore. He's only striking out four batters per nine uh, over this last little bit here. So I'm, uh, I'm curious yeah. to see what that looks like. Um, what did you make of the Phillies decision? I know this is probably we're in a playoff race related, but Zach Wheeler not even getting a rehab start down at AAA before rejoining the team. Well, he was injured, um, like right out the gate. And I forget what injury it was because it feels like an eternity ago, but, um, he was, he had a delayed start entering spring training. Um, and I remember asking him about this and he said that he didn't make a start, um, during like over a rehab rehab assignment over that stint either, like earlier in the year. So, you know, he's like, I think eight year, an eight year veteran. So he's like very in tune with what he needs and his body and all that stuff. And, um, you know, I take him at his word, you know, if he feels like he doesn't really need to face, hmm. face live hitting, but, um, but yeah, so we, we were kind of going off of that example too. Like earlier in the year, he didn't, he didn't feel the need to face live hitting. And then, you know, he was fine. And like I said, he felt like he was even back to his like 2021 20, days when he was, which is his best season to date. So, so yeah, it's, it's an atypical decision, but I think that the Phillies welcome it because they don't have much time. You know, they want to get all, all they can out of him at this point. So, yeah. And tonight we'll see uh, Kyle Gibson who, you know, pretty known commodity at this point, almost 35 years old. Phillies pick him up midway through last year, uh, kind of surprisingly mm-hmm. been a workhorse for them. Second on the team in innings pitched headed for free agency. So um, he has a lot on the line beyond just the Phillies, but how, 
how huge has it been for this team that's dealt with injuries in the starting rotation to have uh, Gibson, even, you know, with a pretty pedestrian 445 ERA, plug that hole and give them good innings, you know, every five days or so? Yeah, I mean, that's really what they need above all else is innings, um, especially given how the bullpen, you know, the bullpen was performing for most of the season. I think part of the reason why they started having trouble of late is because the starters weren't going as deep. So they had to pick up, they were a little bit fatigued. They had to pick up more of the slack. So having a guy that can, you know, really pick up, pick up more innings and a guy that, you know, you're not going to have to like bring, bring a reliever in earlier rather than later um, is a huge help for them for sure. One last question for you uh, before we let you go, obviously all eyes are on the Aaron judge home run watch uh, around the league. He's at 59 right now. It's Kyle Schwarber next on the list with 39. Uh, have you talked to Schwarber at all or, or gotten gotten a chance to about just how big a gap that is? Like home runs are not as high in baseball as they were before, but you have to go yeah. way, way back for the last time a gap in the home run leaderboard was 20 home runs wide. Yeah, that's actually, it's a really interesting question and maybe I'll steal it from you and ask him today. <laughs> um, but no, no, I haven't been able to ask him yet. Um, he's an interesting one just because he's actually, you know, like he'll go like a couple of bats without recording a hit. And then like randomly, like the home runs are like randomly scattered throughout his at bats. Um, so like he's another hitter that hasn't really been as consistent as maybe the Phillies need him to be, especially in the leadoff spot. But like the home runs come kind of randomly for him. So, um, yeah, no, that's that's an interesting question. I'll be sure to ask him. <laughs> yeah, it'd be, uh, you know, you you win the National League home run race and uh, no one remembers because you were a million home runs behind uh, Aaron Judge. Alex Coffey, <laughs> Philadelphia Inquirer. Thanks so much for taking the time out. I really appreciate it. Yep, thanks, Blake. That was Alex Coffey of the Philadelphia Inquirer giving us some insight into the Philly side of things. We've got action at 645. We got a couple notes from Ben Nicholson Smith down in Philadelphia. In addition to the news that Mitch White is with the team, we'll see if he gets used at any point or gets activated. There's been no roster move yet. Um, I had Mitch White penciled in for Saturday. We'll see if the Jays feel differently. Um, the other new note is that uh, Alejandro Kirk returns tonight. He's DHing and hitting fourth. Ben Nicholson-Smith passes on that the Jays are hoping he can catch tomorrow. Uh, they want him to take it easy, but his left hip is good enough to play. So, you know, you know what keeps you from running and using that hip? Just hit home runs. That's easy enough. Maybe he'll do that. Let's take a look at the pitching matchup for tonight. It's Kyle Gibson against Ross Stripling. On the Philly side, Kyle Gibson. He's almost 35. It, Alex and I just talked about it. Almost 35. Pending free agent. Philadelphia got him in the middle of last year from Texas to just eat some innings. He's done that. He's second on that team in innings pitched. He's been pretty serviceable. 445 ERA. Underlying metrics that suggest that's a pretty fair ERA. And he's kind of a standard righty inning eater vet type. Sub 20 strikeout rate, but he doesn't walk a lot of guys. He gets a good ground ball rate. Basically, He's not going to miss a ton of bats, but he does what he can to limit damage. He has a slightly above average chase rate. So getting guys to swing at stuff outside of the zone, slightly above average 
at limiting how well you can barrel up a ball. And then he's pretty shaky when it comes to expected batting average. So um, you can single him to death, the old death by a thousand cuts. His batting average on balls in play against is only 292. You'd expect that to be a little bit higher with his profile, but there's some trickery here. And it's going to be something to watch. I don't know that we'll see all six pitches because the Jays are only starting two lefties and he tends to save a couple of those more for lefties and righties. But if you watch Kyle Gibson, the consistency of his release point across all six of those pitches is pretty remarkable. He releases them all from really close to the same spot, which helps when you're throwing a 92 mile an hour sinker and an 89 mile an hour cutter and a fastball. That's not much livelier uh, as well as three off speed and breaking pitches. It helps that stuff play up when you can't decide what it is until very late. So you will see a 92 mile an hour sinker. He throws that about 28% of the time opponents have hit almost 300 against it this year with some decent power. It's a really good ground ball pitch, but he can make mistakes with it. He can leave it a little flat. And again, it's only coming in at 92. He throws an 89 mile an hour cutter off of that about 21% of the time. Opponents only hitting 221 against it. So a little tougher to hit and square up than that sinker. Um, He'll also throw an 83 mile an hour slider about 20% of the time. Opponents hitting just 205 against that one with a 36% swing and miss rate. So uh, easily his best pitch statistically, but he's a little hesitant to throw it against lefties. Um, He'll also mix in a four seam fastball, a changeup and a curveball. The changeup's the only one of those pitches that is particularly good. Again, this is a lot about the sequencing and the disguising and the tunneling, similar to Ross Stripling, but he doesn't have a pitch nearly as effective as Stripling's changeup to build it all around. The Jays have seen Gibson a lot. 122 plate appearances as a team. 40 of those, though, are Whit Merrifield. He's 10 for 40. He's not in the lineup tonight. Uh, George Springer, Matt Chapman, Teoscar Hernandez are in the lineup. Uh, They do not have a strong track record against Kyle Gibson. Um, Vladimir Guerrero Jr. and Danny Jansen do over a small sample. And then worth noting that Gibson has pretty normal platoon splits. So lefties hit him a little better than righties. Biggio and Tapia are uh, lefties in the lineup for the Jays. So Jays line up like this. George Springer in center, Vladimir Guerrero Jr., Bo Alejandro Kirk back in the four spot, and designated hitter, Matt Chapman, Teoscar Hernandez, Rymel Tapia, Danny Jansen, Kevin Biggio gets the nod at second base. So that's the group that'll be behind Ross Stripling. Stripling, you know the deal on. We talked about it a little earlier. Elite at getting early outs and counts or getting ahead in counts, and that makes everything else play a little better. It helps him to have one of the best chase rates in baseball with a very, very low walk rate. 294 ERA on the season, 282 ERA as a starter. Uh, A couple things to note tonight. He'll pass his career high in innings pitch tonight. So good for him. And if you're wondering about the ability for Stripling to go a third time through the order, well, six consecutive starts now. He's gone six plus. That's every start since coming back off the IL. He's also now faced opponents for 51 plate appearances this year, a third time through the order. He doesn't have the best ERA, but Opponents have a batting average and an on-base percentage under 200 
when Stripling's facing them a third time. So the Stripling can't go a third time through the order stuff. It's not a very robust sample, but it tends to be more he makes a mistake here and there than his stuff can't play because he's still fooling guys just as much. His control is still just as good. He hasn't walked a guy in those 51 plate appearances facing an opponent for the third time. So even though he's got to get a little more creative, um, he's still very effective at what makes him effective. So worth seeing if he extends uh, tonight against a very good top of the Phillies order that goes like this. Kyle Schwarber, Reese Hoskins, Bryce Harper, JT Realmuto, Alec Baum, Bryson Stott, Jean Segura, Gene Segura, rather, uh, Brandon Marsh, Matt Vierling. Of that group, the big names to watch, Harper and Realmuto, not just because they're very good, but because Stripling has poor numbers against this Philly, the active Phillies in this game historically, even though back in July, he went seven innings against them, allowing two runs on two hits with no walks and six strikeouts. Well, guess who wasn't there in that game? Bryce Harper and JT Real Muto. So um, we'll see how that goes. Also worth noting that there are four lefties in that lineup for Philadelphia, but Ross Stripling has reverse platoon splits. So he's actually been harder on lefties in large part because of that um, changeup this year. So a couple notes to watch for uh, with Stripling there. And then there are a bunch of Phillies who have uh, no success against him in small samples, all from that outing a little earlier in the year. Um, one more update from Ben Nicholson Smith from down in Philadelphia. Lourdes Gurriel Jr. is working out at the Jays complex in Florida. He's doing hitting and throwing drills. Um, he's a little further behind when it comes to running at the moment. He's expected to rejoin the Blue Jays in Tampa Bay, but it could take him longer uh, to be activated. Also, also worth noting with Gurriel and with any injury from here, um, the Dunedin Blue Jays will wrap up in a couple days here. New Hampshire and Vancouver are already done. And the Bisons in Buffalo only have a couple games left. So your window for rehab opportunities could be running out. If Guriel can't get into a game in the next couple days, then he might just have to, well, not might, he will have to just figure it out on the fly at the major league level, uh, maybe pinch hitting at first or DHing and then ramping up from there. That's a big one to watch. Rymel Tapia's hit really well of late, played really well of late in general. Fifth on the team in playing time over the last two weeks. I think the Jays would probably prefer to go into the playoffs with both of those guys as an option, maybe even going a uh, full platoon route if they don't have 100% faith that Lourdes Gurriel uh, is going to be back to effective Gurriel. Uh, something to watch there. But the good news tonight, Alejandro Kirk back. We'll see how that goes at the DH spot. We'll see how that goes for us. Stripling throwing to Danny Jansen. Jays Phillies. Um, ben Wagner on the call. 645 first pitch as a reminder. It's an early one tonight. Uh, that's the case tomorrow against Philadelphia as well. Blair and Barker will have you for Jays talk post game. Thank you to Alex Coffey for coming on with us, to Chris Black and Joe Siddle in that first segment. That's always so much fun. Jay Jaffe from Fangraphs, Doug Fox from Future Blue Jays doing the kind of end of season farm system roundup. And of course, thanks to Brett and JR behind the glass. Uh, JSOC Plus will be back with you three to five all week. Phillies again tomorrow and then a couple against Tampa. I'm going to stick around right now, though, and talk to Ben Ennis for a bit on fan drive time so stick around for that 
and we'll be back with Jays Talk Plus tomorrow, maybe with the Jays a little closer to making next week's series against the Yankees interesting. Five and a half back in the division right now. Big old cushion on a playoff spot. Phillies are good, though. Lots to play for. Should be a fun one tonight. Talk to you tomorrow.